0: Hello, all. You are listening to The Random Thought Pod. I am your random thought leader, Bridge Watt, and I am here with author Joshua Lawson. Welcome to The Random Thought Pod, Josh.
1: Hey, thanks. It's great to be here.
0: So you are here to talk about your book, <laughs> Drugs good- and Jesus, Faith Meets Harm Reduction. There we go. Um, tell me a bit about yourself. Um, <laughs> How did you become an advocate for those who suffer from drug addiction?
1: Yeah, so I have a long history in the faith community, uh, evangelical Christian to be specific. Uh, That's almost all of the faith community where I live in Southern Ohio. Um, But in around about 2018, I believe it was, I was given an opportunity to work for an organization called Faith in Public Life and uh, kind of an advocacy, social justice oriented group. And they were working on a constitutional amendment, a ballot amendment that year in the state of Ohio. And it was focused in on the intersection of the criminal justice system and people who use drugs and or those who are seeking recovery from a substance use disorder. So I took that opportunity and it gave me kind of the time and space I needed because it was a paid gig to begin to get close to people in my community who were suffering kind of the full weight of the opioid crisis. I live just outside of Portsmouth, Ohio, which is right on the Ohio-Kentucky border, right on the Ohio River, which is nationally regarded as one of, if not the epicenter of the opioid crisis in rural America. We were the location of the first pill mills, uh, you know, God, it's been close to two decades ago now. So I I was vaguely aware of the situation. Um, I had friends, uh, people I knew over time who had been affected by drug use and addiction. Uh, But that stint working for that organization gave me the space I really needed to get a lot closer to the situation. Begin to listen to people's stories, to really hear where they were coming from, to see the journey that they had taken, that had landed them in in spots where, you know, a lot of people in society would just be quick to write them off and just say, well, you made a bad choice, now you got to live with it. So, you know, seeing that was impactful for me. And when I came to the end of that season, I'm also a writer, a storyteller. I thought, well, why don't I try to put these two things together? And I began to interview some people that I had met during that season of time uh, to tell their stories. And that became my first book, which was The Face of Addiction. And really from there, uh, it's just been one step followed upon another, Uh, just new opportunities as I've gotten closer to the issue as I've met people who are working in the field, both clinically and those with lived experience, those in the recovery community. And uh, it's just continued to kind of open doors and kind of enlarge my perspective on the issue. And I'm fascinated by the whole thing and it's the most urgent social need in my neck of the woods. So it just made sense to try to, um, you know, focus a lot of my work there.
0: Makes sense. Yeah, I think it's like when it becomes real to you and you're actually talking to people and hearing their stories, makes a great mm-hmm. difference. Um, yeah. Everything I know about the drug crisis um, would be from watching Dope Sick. And okay. uh, at the other, uh, there's like a podcast I was listening to, too. I'll actually link that in the show notes. And it kind of details an, a drug addict's um, experience um, in Vancouver, uh, B.C. I, mm-hmm. I'm Canadian, by the way. Yeah, South, I agree. Alberta. But um yeah, and it talks about how like they were replacing methadone with methadose, which is not as good. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll put that link in there, too. Yeah. Um, so you say that helping drug addicts is right in line with scripture. Um, how does anyone dispute that? Like, It makes sense to help the marginalized. Why would, mm-hmm. why would people argue against that?
1: Great question, and that's what I, I try to challenge people with who are still kind of on the margins of this problem, kind of keeping uh, their distance from those who are in need. Um, I think there's a lot of ways you could answer that question. It's kind of a case-by-case basis, depending on the individual. Uh, But there's still quite a bit of stigma surrounding the topic of drug use and addiction. And where I live in central Appalachia, uh, there's a very strong culture of rugged independence Uh, you live with the consequences of your choices. And so there's still a lingering feeling that uh, drug addiction in this case is just the result of bad choices and it's a moral failing. And uh, we would be doing a disservice to people if we enable them in their, you know, wrong or sinful or destructive behavior. Mm -hmm. So that's where the disconnect is, especially when it comes to harm reduction, uh, which folks, a lot of folks around here feel is a step or maybe ten steps too far towards enabling behavior that they regard to be wrong, bad, or sinful. So and it's real easy when you have a, a perspective, a paradigm in your mind uh, through which you view people or a certain situation to uh, have be blinded to other things. So when Christians come to the scripture, uh, they see those types of things that reinforce in this case their more conservative worldview. Uh, rather than um, what might be a more compassionate approach to people who, like you said, they have, they have a story, they have a long history that's brought them to this place. And if you don't know that story, then how can you be moved with compassion to, you know, help them or to stand in solidarity with them? So, you know, that distance from the problem is one big part of it. And I, I quote the author, John Galsworthy, in my book, who said that our idealism uh, increases in direct proportion to our distance from a problem. And okay. uh, even though it's right here in our backyard, we still have folks who can have their heads buried in the sand. They're just kind of waiting for this all to go to go away, so to speak. Um And so, you know, it's a lot of things, but... You know, the whole purpose of the book was to try to present here a, a new perspective on this situation from the angle of scripture for Christians, specifically conservative and evangelical Christians, to see that this is right in line with your faith tradition. This is right in line with the teaching, the example of Jesus. Maybe nobody's ever encouraged you to look at it in this way before, but I'm saying it's there and it's uh, there in plain sight if you're, if you're open to seeing it.
0: Right. Wow. Um, so you say historically churches speak to communities more than mm-hmm. they listen to them. Um, this has been such a point of frustration for me personally. Um, how do you think this has become the case?
1: Uh, you know, in America, at least, I think it has somewhat to do with the, uh, the kind of unholy alliance between church and state uh, that's mm-hmm. developed over, you know, a couple centuries here. You know, we, we've gotten too used to our position of privilege and power in our society. And so, you know, we then associate that with some type of higher moral standing. You know, we think we are blessed or favored by God because we're up here while the rest is down here. And so even if we don't mean to, even if that's not the intention, that can become like this, uh, you know, this lens through which we view and through which we interact with our communities. And, uh, you know, historically faith communities, especially in a place like mine, we, we're we a county of about 80,000, 70 to 80,000 people. And there are nearly 200 churches in our county, and they're almost all evangelical Christian Protestant churches. And so where are you going to go? I mean, historically, faith communities and churches are you know, like a second family to most people in areas like ours. That's, that's that you grow up in them. You know, your pastor, you know, the people that you uh, associate with and interact with at church are, are like family to you. So even even still today nationally polls show that faith leaders are one of the most trusted individuals in a person's life and in a community's life. So we we've had this position for better or for worse where we, you know, are the the, the mouthpiece of God so to speak. Or at least we we are the, the the storytellers who kind of set the tone for how people in society, you know, more broadly speaking, you know, view and relate to each other. Uh, so with that power comes great responsibility and we don't always wield it well. And one of the ways is we failed to see that, you know, ultimately the call is to to be a servant, not to be served. So, you know, we need to, I think, put down the microphone. A little bit more than we do and and come down alongside of people and actually listen to the folks in our community. And I think we see this across the country and it's starting to wash up more on the shores in rural areas like mine. We're becoming a post-Christian society in the West is what some have called it yeah. and uh, or losing relevance in a, in a lot of yeah. cases because we've lost the ear of the people because we've stopped listening you know, to those outside of the community, you know, the faith community in this sense. So, you know, it, it's happened gradually over time, and I think it's becoming more apparent now um, that we need to put down the mic and actually start listening more than we're speaking.
0: Mm. I like that John Heumann co- quote that you uh, have in the mm-hmm. book. I sought to hear the voice of God and climb to the topmost steeple, but God declared, I go down again. I dwell among the people. And so I think that's out. That's yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, I like your take on personal responsibility and social responsibilities as it relates to the bootstrap adage, Mm -hmm. you know, telling people to pull themselves up from their bootstraps. What's your take on that?
1: Well, my take on that is it's ironic that that's become, you know, a symbol of of rugged individualism and self-sufficiency, especially in Appalachian America. And I'm okay with that because, you know, I'm, I'm big on that myself you know i like to be independent i like to feel self sufficient i like i like that aspect of personal responsibility but that that adage uh, originally if you if you go back in history it was it was created as a way to show that it's really impossible to do most things by yourself that we we don't exist in a vacuum that we need one another we need the help of society in general you know think about it pull yourself up by your own bootstraps that's that's literally impossible to do <laughs> you can't do it Right? So, you know, it's morphed over time to become a symbol of self-sufficiency, which is, which is okay. But originally it was satire. Originally it was, it was going to show that, you know, you who are so hyper-focused on the individual and the individual accomplishments and an individual personal responsibility, you're, you're missing a big piece of the puzzle here, which is our social responsibility that we bear towards one another, to live in community, uh, to be there, to be for one another, to bear one another's burdens, to support and hold each other up. And sometimes, a lot of times that gets lost in translation in communities like mine. So to be able to balance, you know, the second side of the coin, social responsibility with personal responsibility is what a lot I like, I tried to do, you know, in the writing of this book.
0: Hmm. Um, okay. So you say that moral judgment is fundamentally different from genuine assessment. Yeah. How do the two differ?
1: So, you know, I understand a moral judgment to be black and white. It's mm-hmm. right or wrong. It's yes or no. And we're at a bit of a disadvantage because that's the way our brains are hardwired to see the world. That, that's helped us su- to survive evolutionarily. Um, but in most cases, reality is far more gray, especially when it comes to people's choices, especially when it comes to the things they do or do not do in their life. It's not always just a simple matter of, well, this is right, this is wrong. I'm going to choose what is Right. Especially when you get into the the murky waters of drug use and addiction. Um, understanding addiction, if you do as a, as a learning disorder, as a, as a disease of the brain, however you want to look at it, there's a lot more at play here than just I'm making a choice to do something, even if it's harming me in some, in some sense. Uh, so, you know, a moral judgment is just that we 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 look at what a person is doing or not doing and we say it's right or wrong. Boom. I don't care about the context, I don't care about the story, I don't care about the history, I don't care about where they're coming from perspectively or experientially. Not interested in any of that. But that's that's what comes out of a relationship. When you get to know somebody, when you begin to learn their story, you understand that there's there are many steps that have led up to this one. Yeah. And until you can understand that in your life or or somebody else's life, you can't really begin to have compassion, whether for yourself or for other people. Um, and that's lacking a lot in our society. We're too disconnected from one another. We're too distant from one another. And therefore, we are prone to make judgments. When even the the, the message of Scripture, I think Paul said it most plainly, is you who judge, have you ever stopped to think about the fact that you do the same things? just in a different way, maybe a more socially acceptable way. You know, if we want to talk about it with, with addictions, we all have addictions and unhealthy attachments that we suffer with and we suffer due to, uh, but some are more socially acceptable. You know, some are more okay and drug use, illicit hardcore drug use, at least is one of those that's, it's not, it's still taboo. It's still a no, no. Um, and sometimes that's, you know, for legitimate reasons, but we don't stop to think, okay, who is this person as a human being? Where are they coming from? Why Why are they doing what they're doing, and how can I relate to that? Because you know, I can relate to that, actually, very much, if I want to be honest with myself.
0: Mm. Okay, so when we blame the addict for being in the mess they are in and write them off as lost causes, you say we are behaving similarly to the people who did not help the man beaten by the robbers in the Good Samaritan parable. This hits hard. Um, do you think much of this is just lazy thinking, like we don't want to work to understand?
1: I think, yes, you could definitely look at it that way. Um, Because the work of understanding another person, the work of imagining yourself in their shoes is difficult. And in some ways it's almost indicting, you know, we, we like to maintain the distance because we feel more justified in ourselves. And that's why we cast moral aspersions and judgments on other people, because usually we see something in them that corresponds with something in us that we've condemned, or we we keep secret, or we hide, or we refuse to face about ourselves. And it's so much easier to project those, you know, dark things that we we don't approve of in ourselves onto other people and then easily just judge it there. We see this all the time. This is a theme that Jesus speaks about when he talks about remove the you know, the log from your own eye before you speak to the speck in your brother's eye. Paul, as I already referenced, you know, you do the same things that you judge other people for. So it's it's almost like we we refuse to look in the mirror, you know, because that's what we ultimately are for one another. If we're in a close relationship with somebody, there are just so many ways in which that acts as a mirror to our own issues, our own problems, our own shortcomings, our own failures. And we can work those out in relationship to each other. But if we refuse to be in close relationship with each other, if we hold each other at arm's length, then, you know, we can stay at a safe distance where we feel unindictable. We feel we're not a part of this problem. That's their problem to deal with. It's not my problem. Right. So that goes back to Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? You know, he wanted to excuse himself from the situation. Obviously, it was more a direct offense there. Cain killed his brother. But we do that in very subtle ways in all of our relationships with those who use drugs, uh, you know, across the board, the marginalized in our community. It's their problem. It's not my problem. I'm up here. They're down here. So we refuse that relationship because, you know, we do not want to be indicted in the problems that society as a whole is facing. We don't want to see our complicity in systems, and in situations, and in socionomic, uh, you know, factors that are driving a lot of these crises, up to and including the opioid and the overdose crisis.
0: I like the term, um, those who use drugs. I think that's a good way of phrasing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, you have, um, we have this passage I wanted you to read. Um, yeah. Can you read that? I really like this passage.
1: <laughs> yes, I will. <laughs> All right, so maybe you would never stick a needle in your arm, no matter how bad life got. Wonderful. Good for you. I'm happy to know you were taught effective coping skills that have kept you out of harm's way in this respect. But what about the woman who grew up in the foster care system? She never had a stable family environment to call her own. Even worse, she was molested repeatedly by those who were supposed to take care of her. And nobody ever taught her how to regulate her nervous system. And the suffering became unbearable, so now she's living with the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder. For all you know, that shot of heroin that she's chasing represents everything she didn't get to enjoy as a distressed child. An imaginative escape from a dark, scary world, or a soft, warm hug from someone who cares about her. Comfort, the very thing that faith communities could and should be providing to people in need
0: this really puts it in perspective. Um, It shows the failure of the church. Um, I can really see why you needed to write this book. How do you think the church got so off mission on this?
1: Yeah, that's a real good way of phrasing it. Mission drift. When you hear that organizationally, but I think that can definitely be applied to the churches. And, uh, you know, that's that's what I tried to do with this book is to, to draw back to that central mission using primarily Jesus's words in Matthew 25, which is whatever you have done or not done to the least of these you've done to me. Mm-hmm. And that parable, that, that story he tells of the sheep and the goats really cuts through a lot of theological and doctrinal red tape a lot of considerations about what about this and what about that and it's like okay if you want to if you want to occupy yourself with those things fine you can do that but do it over here here's the central mission here's what you're to be about if you can't see the image of god in your neighbor who is suffering if you lack that kind of faith then see me there have me as an object of faith. Mm. He self-identifies with the poor, the marginalized, the outcast, those in prison, you know, those who are sick, all those who are in need and says, serve me there. Um, so, so it cuts through that. It, it draws back in away from that mission drift, which why does it happen? A thousand and one reasons. You know, we 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 really get our heads in the theological clouds as as Christians uh, sometimes, and I tried to show that in the book in the first chapters from my own story using that John Henry Newman quote. I spent 20 years with my head up in the clouds, so to speak. You know, always occupied with my vision, my my ministry, what I thought was the highest and best and truest will of God, what He wanted from me, and that's all good and that's all fine. But when it's blinding me to the needs of my neighbors down the street who are suffering right now in real living hell on earth conditions, and I'm not moved with any compassion for their plight because I'm so occupied with all these heavenly things, you know, these doctrinal things, that's a real good example to me. And I hope it came forth in the book of how I think maybe the churches as a whole have and can often do drift from that central mission that Jesus calls us to, which is to be this light in the world, which is to come down alongside of those who are suffering, walk with them, and uh, do what we can to relieve the suffering while we're here.
0: And I think this is where my struggle lies with the church, is I feel like like I used to be part of the worship team. I used to do clinician work with worship teams and teach them how to make their music really, you know, impactful mm-hmm. in all this. But I feel like, I I just I have such a struggle now with worship music because I feel like it's all just kind of like, all right, I'm going to get myself right. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to get aligned with God. And people are spending so much time trying to get themselves aligned that they completely miss out on what's actually happening in the world and engaging with it. Um, and it's like similar to what... Um, Tony Campolo would talk about how like there's these people inside a church and there's a guy outside that just got shot and he's bleeding out and dying. And he's like, well, someone help me. And the people inside the church are like, yeah, yeah, we'll help you in a bit. We're just having a really good experience with God right now. (laughs) And I just like and so for me, it's just kind of like, can we just Mm
1: -hmm.
0: can we just skip the worship right now and like just figure out like how we can love Other Mm -hmm. people, because I believe God is pleased with that. And so as my faith has shifted, I feel like I've become a humanist first and a theologian second, where Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to deal with horizontal morality. And the vertical morality is something that I think will come out of that. Right. Um, whereas I think like a lot of people within the church are like, I need to get vertical morality completely right. So I know what the parameters are of horizontal morality. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, well, I just got to check to see if God's okay with me helping this drug addict. And it's like, what, mm-hmm. what are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's a great, that's a great point. And I agree a hundred percent. Um, you know, you mentioned the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and then that I tried to bring that out from the story in the book, that there was no mm-hmm. question here of moral judgment. There's no question here of what led this person to this point. It's just, if you, you know, in answer to your question, Jesus says to the guy, how, how do I inherit eternal life? Here it is. You know, another cut through the red tape moment. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, well, what does that mean? Who's my neighbor? Well, that's the wrong question. Who are you going to be a neighbor to? That's, that's what I'm interested in from you, Jesus says. And he tells this story to illustrate what he means. Who do you think then was a neighbor to the man in need? Is it the one who passed by on the other side? He was busy on his way to church, busy with ministry, administrative duties, had his head up in the clouds, worshiping, you know, whatever you want, you want to, you know, apply to it there. No, it was the man who saw this person in need and stopped what he was doing and did what he could in that moment to help them. That's the man who loved his neighbor as himself. And thereby loved God with all of his heart and thereby inherits eternal life. (laughs) That's Mm. like cutting right through the red tape, right? And I think it goes right along with what you're saying. Want to worship? You want to sing? Fine. Do all that, but not to the exclusion of the central mission, why we're here. Mm. You know, and I think the whole incarnation speaks very clearly to this. We get God wrong quite a bit. And that, but that's the central message of the Christian faith, I think, is the word became flesh. And then we saw clearly. We saw his glory in the form of this person. he joined a working class family. He was born in a stable in humble origins. you know he he wasn't demanding worship. It wasn't this mighty God of glory that was often envisioned by even you know Jewish uh, believers in the Old Testament, but it was quite different and quite offensive in many ways, but he says this is this is who God is. this is what God looks like now follow me, you know
0: wow, follow me. We're having church here in the podcast on like this. <laughs> But it like, and I feel like it's like, who is my neighbor? It's like, well, who's in need around you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. who's, what's, what's crossing your feed right now? Like, that's your, that's your neighbor. Mm-hmm. You know, we're seeing devastation happening, you know, unfolding in like our world news. That's your neighbor. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, how can you help them? Yeah. Um. Okay. Another passage I just can't let go of. Um, In many ways, harm reduction starts with a firm commitment on your part to say, just say no to this blockade of idealism. It means giving up your easy answers and meeting people where they are so you can accompany them on their own healing journey, not as their savior, but as their friend. Man, like, the church really needs Jesus to change their hearts on this. Um, hmm. And I, I don't see this at all in the modern church. At, well, generally, I don't see it in the modern church. I think, like, I'm, I'm part of a small congregation. I've reengaged with church. Yep. Um, and it's a small congregation that's um, kind of working through some issues because we had to leave our denomination hmm. um, because of the stances we're taking. And so, and it's like such a small congregation because the stances we're taking aren't massively popular in evangelicalism, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So yeah, that's one exception I know of, (laughs) but, um, but it's like, this is how Jesus was a friend of sinners. Like he actually was able to be their friend. And it it seems like people don't have imagination for this. Mm. And I I feel like I'm just asking the same question over and over again. It's like, how do we get people there? Right. But I I think like there is, there is story there. Yeah. Um, and I like, to me, the most incredible part of your whole book, I'm like, just totally skipping up ahead in the notes Hmm. was that, um, lady who said, I'm not a drug addict. I'm just a girl. Yeah. Right. And, um, she, ha- she has a story, and, like, mm. it's so impactful, and it's heartbreaking. hmm
1: Yeah. We, uh, yeah, I don't know if this is a, you know, if that's, if that's a lead into a question, but, yeah, we, we miss the forest for the trees, to use yeah. that expression. And uh, what that means in a lot of cases is that people, you know, real human beings— Called by God, loved by God, are lost, are falling through the cracks because we 're worried about this or that question of or dispute of doctrine or theological position or what 's right and what 's wrong and who 's in and who 's out you know that 's a big one that I tried to bring forth, and I think maybe chapter two of this this concept of the theological other. And how if you're paying attention in the Gospels, Jesus is constantly leading his disciples into these apparently random encounters with the other, which would be someone outside of their theological circle, in this case, non-Jewish people, like the Samaritan, the despised Samaritan who come along. That was an intentional choice in Jesus's storytelling mechanism. The Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite dog, you know, who came Mm -hmm. to him crying out, And, uh, we reverse engineer that situation to see the process of humanization, to take one who has been, who has been relegated to the margins and dehumanized by people who are part of the in-group. And he brings her back until she's a woman standing right in front of him with real needs. And it doesn't matter that she doesn't belong to your group. God is concerned with her. God is active in her life. In her life and through her life, in some cases, more than he is you guys, he even tells her, tells the disciples at one point. I've not seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. Wow. We, we yeah. gloss over that, but what if it was translated today? You know, these, these, these true boo fundamentalist evangelical believers who are really convinced that the sphere of God's activity is, is at least primarily confined within the church, right? Within their, within this, this in group that we believe that we are. What if Jesus showed up and said, he pointed to somebody outside of that circle, far, far outside of that circle and said, I have not seen this kind of faith yeah. in all of the church. You know, so Jesus yeah. is constantly leading them to see God active, concerned with and present with these people who they regard to be on the outside, excluded from the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. It says, look, no, look what's happening here. Look what's happening here. You know, and and so to have that journey theologically, practically, spiritually, is to answer your question overall. What I think it takes to move Christians to this place of real, genuine ministry and compassion is to somehow foster this openness to the Spirit of God, to allow, to to take us on that journey of seeing God present and active outside of our circles just as much as He is inside. There are shocking things in Scripture, and I tried to pull out a few of those even from the Old Testament prophets, things that the prophet said in the name of God, in the name of Yahweh, said like you know god brought these people out of their land you know bondage into their land just like he did you know the the israelites from egypt uh to, to to again show you know it's not just you it's all these other people too and uh you know the the call is to to see that to see other people who are currently slipping through the cracks because we're we got our head in the clouds because we're Doctrinally disputing about this and that, and we've got congregations like yours who are taking stands trying to you know walk in solidarity with marginalized people like we believe jesus did, and that's just a big deal you know that's a that's a big thing right and and all the time people are dying all the time people yeah. are suffering, and that's yeah. the main thing right yeah. so drawing back the central mission away from that drift that's the main thing and so to constantly be bringing that back into people's view, I think that's the essence of what the prophets did they're they're constantly calling attention back to the main thing. I despise your feasts. You know, I think it was uh, Amos. Was it Amos that said, you're you're, you're flowing, you know, your your songs and all that, but let righteousness flow down like a river. That's what I want. So this constant drawing back to the main thing, the main thing, the main thing, all this other stuff is fine until it gets in the way of the main thing. And then it's not fine. And then God's going to call prophets and they're going to tear it all down.
0: (laughs) Well, and I I think what it is, yeah, and I think what when – Churches, you know, more progressive churches get in trouble is because they're saying, well, you guys are condoning sin so you can have community with these people. And so I would say like this harm reduction is similar to engaging with other like marginalized group where we're just kind of like, well, no, no, no. We're breaking bread with these people where they're at, as opposed to telling them you must pass this purity test before you're able to come into our community. Right. (laughs) Right. And it's yeah. like, like let, let let God work with these people. But it's like, it's not your job to fix them. It's your job to have community with them yeah. and figure out how to keep them alive. Like, I mean, that's what yeah. harm reduction is, is, is like, we're just trying to keep these people alive. And right. if we can keep them alive, maybe they can get their life on track. Yeah. Whatever that's supposed to look like for them.
1: Exactly. And, and again, it all goes back to this fundamental change of perspective. None of that is possible until we stop seeing us and them, Yeah. right? Like we're, we're somewhere up here and they're somewhere down here and we're like coming in as saviors to like be what yeah. they need. It's, it's not like that. It's, it's this, it's all based on this fundamental recognition that we are all essentially the same, that we all essentially share this common human struggle. And it looks different in your life than it does in mine, but it's the same struggle. And I am no better than you and I'm not above you or beneath you. Right? Yeah. We're all on this plane together. Yeah. You know? So it's this radical solidarity, I think, that forms the basis of the compassion that Jesus calls us to, where we walk alongside of one another rather than, you know, this this above or below kind of a hierarchy of evaluation that we place upon people. So if we can yeah. change, reframe our perspective to see that that we're all in this together, we're all on the same plane. Your suffering, your quirks, your whatever looks a little different from, from mine, but we can relate if we get to know each other as human beings and we enter into a true relationship, we can relate. And then maybe if we can come to that place, we can actually be helpful to one another in a real genuine positive way.
0: Yeah, well, it's like we're all created in the image of love. Mm -hmm. And it's like, which means that there's parts of love or God that we can learn from each other. right? And so, and it's like, and when you meet those people who are marginalized, it's like, wow, I am learning so much from you, right? And it's like, but you have to humble yourself and like mm-hmm. not have that mentality, you know? I'm here to help you, right? It's like I'm just, yeah. i just, I want to just know you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah.
0: I um, so I I read this book um called uh, Peace and Good Order by Harold Johnson, and he's an mm-hmm. indigenous author. Um, who was a lawyer. And um, he talks a lot about, like, what's happening in the communities that he's been working with in northern Saskatchewan, mm-hmm. um, where there's, like, a lot of alcoholism as a mm-hmm. result of, like, um, generational yeah. um, abuse that's happened, you know? And it started with, like, our um, our uh, schools, our residential school system, where they tried to force mm-hmm. the Indian out of the yeah. child, right? Like, mm-hmm. it was that was the whole point is like we were trying to our government and our church was trying to do that. But he talks about how like, there's kind of this perpetual cycle of abuse and in which like, like, like for example, like murder charges that happened, it was like how many of the people who committed these murders were sober? Hmm. And he's like, in my whole career, only one was sober. And so it's like, you commit all these crimes while under the influence and then mm-hmm. that creates more abuse, and then these people to escape their PTSD. There's more drug use and alcohol use that perpetuates itself. And he argues against like a deterrent-based justice system, mm-hmm. and talks more so about helping people have the opportunity to make amends. And mm-hmm. so I think when you talk about like children who are abused or neglected, yeah. um, and how we do nothing about it. And then when they grow up, they become these broken adults. And it's similar mm-hmm. to what he was saying in the book, yeah. um, where it's like we then punish them for mm-hmm. how they acted out. Um, so how do you think we can intervene you know, early in these situations where someone's being abused?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, we have to, we have to stop. I think one example is we have to stop separating people according to these perceived categories. So, you know, that's a great point you make. And I think it is in line with the author, the person you're talking about. I know here where I live, we have also a foster care crisis that's closely related to the opioid uh, and the drug use and all the stuff going on here. We have more children in foster care in our county per capita than any of the metro areas across the state of Ohio. And a lot of it is because Children are pulled out of their homes when the parents or the caregivers are found to be, you know, using some capacity. And everybody's so sympathetic to these kids, understandably so, rightly so, right? And so moved and so wanting to help and wanting to change the situation. But yes, 20 years from now, you know, statistically, when some of these or many of these kids end up because of their trauma, because of their brokenness, because of the pain, they end up like maybe their parents are in a similar situation. Then the yeah. compassion goes away. Then the sympathy goes away. Then the caring goes away. Um, how how do we get beyond that? You know, we do have to focus on on the kids, but we have to understand that the kids are part of a family structure. I hear that a lot from folks around here. We need to quit putting so much time and money and attention into drug treatment for the adults. We just need to cut them loose and let them go. There's no hope for them. We got to focus on the kids. Mm -hmm. Okay. But these kids are going home to parents and families where there's this environment. So you can't just separate the kids out from that environment and say, you know, we're going to help them and not them. Right. I hear that. Mm -hmm. Another example I hear all the time is all we need to focus less on the the druggies and we need to help our veterans, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, There's a lot of veterans on the street, unhoused. There's a lot of veterans with mental health and addiction issues. To help one is to help the other. So, but we so we segment people out. We create these categories, and we say these are are worthy of our help. These are deserving of our help, and these are not. You know, based on some level of perceived innocence or whatever it might be. So we have to stop doing that, and we have to find ways in our communities of of doing that. You know, from a systems level, you know, programmatically. You know, we have we have programs that are for kids, programs that are for people in reentry. We have to, I don't know, I, it's a really great question and, and it's not getting explored as much as it should be in our communities, but we have to stop seeing people as, as separate, separate categories and kind of address them as, as they are in the situations they are. And that's why I like harm reduction, this whole mantra of meeting people where they are and okay, let's yeah. go from there. You know, we're not, we're not coming into the situation yeah. with an ideal picture in our head of how things should be. We don't know. We just know how things are today, so let's start there and let's take the next step together. See what a person needs, listen to them from their perspective, not just what I assume that they need in this situation. Because I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know where they're coming from. And I don't know what's going to be best for them. But if I begin to listen to them, form a relationship with them, they can tell me, you know, or they can they can you know, tell whoever. Um, so... Great question. I think that's a bit of a muddled it's, answer, but it's it's a really good question.
0: It's all going to be muddled answers. I mean, there's <laughs> yeah. just no easy answers for these. Um, I think what's really interesting is like when the topic of veterans comes up, because there's mm. just like, no, like all of a sudden it's like, no, no, no. We would not be able to talk to each other today if it weren't for the veterans. Sure. And like for me, maybe I've just, I spent a little bit of time in a Mennonite church, so maybe I'm too pacifist mm. now, but yeah. I am just kind of looking. at am like, I don't understand, like, I don't understand why... We send soldiers over to Afghanistan to like inadvertently like kill children. Mm-hmm. And then we're looking at it and we're saying, well, because of that, we're able to talk today, right? We have freedom of speech because of it. And I'm like, I don't connect. And what's so interesting to me too is like within like the church, we've, it's like we conflate being willing to die and being willing to kill. Sure. So it's like, so we kind of look at it it's like, well, you know, it's like greater love has no man than to lay down his life mm-hmm. but we actually fl- what we really mean is greater love has no man than to be willing to kill for those who he loves sure right yeah and and so it's like freedom comes at a price and we always think about the you know say the veterans that die but it's like the veterans that come back it's like well hopefully you killed someone for us right and so it, and it's such a difficult issue And I, like, I don't want to disrespect people who do put their lives on the line. Sure. But I really question, like, what are we doing? Like, what, what is the point of all this war? Yeah. And I know this is totally a separate topic, but it's just (laughs) like, like, to me, it's just like, it's just too bad that like, you know, when we have the drug addict on the street, it's like, well, were they a war hero? If they were a war hero, then we care. Right. if they're not a war re- hero, they're useless. Right. Right? And it's like and but it's like that whole like I can't even do the math for why the war hero is better. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't make sense to me. Like it's just kind of this thing that's ingrained in our culture that it's like our veterans mm-hmm. our veterans need to be treated well. Yeah. And it's and it is a shame that people who you know it's like these people have injuries that are directly the result for working for your government. Right? And so yeah. So, I mean, like, just from that perspective, I'm like, yeah, that's really messed up. But it's like, I just would love for us to not categorize people like that.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 So so many of the, the issues, the social crises, they're all so interrelated. And that's where it yeah. can get really complex and that's where it can really get overwhelming. And that's why some yeah. people, like, I'll talk with my wife about a lot of things and we'll laugh about it because, like, it motivates me to, like, see what's going on in the world. <laughs> and then like say, okay, how can I fit into this? How can I be a part of some type of solution? It overwhelms her. She's like, don't talk to me yeah. about all this stuff. I don't want to hear the latest, of, you know, Israel and Gaza yeah. and all this stuff, you know, as an example, yeah. because it, it's more paralyzing for her. So I think people yeah. have different responses. But yes, it yeah. is true, though, to see all of these things are interconnected. They are related in so many ways. It's, it's, it's this big, messy entanglement um, so to to really get at sustainable solutions that go to the root instead of just you know hacking away at the branches you know the the, the symptoms of the problem that's that's uh, that's a whole another whole nother ball ballgame and yeah I think the veterans and war and all those those relationships really kind of bring that out for sure
0: yeah yeah well it's just like we want power we want power on our side and it's mm-hmm. like and that's I think that's kind of the oomph. with all of this. I mean, it's like, that's what the politics, that's where we're going wrong with politics too. We're Uh like, we want a powerful person to speak on behalf of us. And I'm like, this is so anti Jesus. Like, yeah. And so, um, all right. So you say, um, another quote from your book, let's say it one more time for good measure. It is not what goes into a person that defiles them, but what comes out of their heart as evidence by the words they speak. So, It's not so much the man on the street with the unsterilized needle in his arm who is defiling himself, but the person in the pew at the church down the road whose words about that man, whether spoken in public or in private, betray the stigma they carry in their heart toward him. Speaking about another person as though they were something other than or less than the beloved child of God that they are, doing violence to the image of God, with stigmatizing dehumanizing language that defiles a person far more than shooting up with a dirty needle wow <laughs> those are good words <laughs> i'm like this is like and this is just something that's so incredible to me you know as i've kind of stepped away from evangelicalism is just like being able to see how little self-reflection people tend to have And I'm like, I would think, like, I would hope that Christians would be the most self-reflective people out there. Right. You know, it's like, if you believe you're a sinner saved by grace, then you should be able to be like David and say, is there anything offensive about me? Mm
1: -hmm. But I
0: think maybe that offensive part is that they're fixated again on the vertical morality, where they're like, Mm -hmm. is God offended by me? But yeah. they're not thinking about like, am I offending the image of God in this person? Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, and I think one good way of illustrating that is kind of this um, popular view of like the Pharisees. I think the Pharisees overall get a bad rap historically when I've read they weren't, they weren't all bad guys, but definitely in the Gospels they're portrayed as, hey, don't be like these folks. Uh, as opposed to Jesus, right? And I think one of the ways that this, the writers of the Gospels bring that out is just what you said—that that that, that over concern for the vertical, right? He, Jesus mm-hmm. said, "You'll you'll you'll swallow a camel and strain at a gnat, or was it the other way around? You'll you'll tithe, you know, down to the ten percent on mint and you know these little herbs and spices, but you ignore the weightier matters of the law." He said, "Justice, righteousness, right relationship with your neighbor." And how did that come out? Well, you know, they were afraid to touch the leper, right? Mm-hmm. For fear that the leper would contaminate them. Yeah. Right? That they would catch what they had. Okay. And I think that's a, that's symbolic there. That's a good metaphor. Jesus comes along and what does he do? He lays hands on, he touches the leper, right? Not afraid of them contaminating him, but, but he's just overflowing with this love, this generosity, this faith that, that's going to actually affect them. It's going to go the opposite way. And so I think that speaks to a totally, two totally different postures on life and how we regard one another. And a lot of it comes down to, I think, again, that, yes, what you said, the perspective of, am I so concerned with me and God and this right relationship that I think comes down to this and this and this, and it causes me to be blind to the needs of those around me and to to keep them at arm's length? Or am I going to approach it the way of Jesus, which is, you know, yes, he cared about his relationship with the Father. He was all the time going off to pray, to spend time in solitude alone and all that kind of stuff. But when he saw the people, he was moved with compassion, you know he came down from that place constantly to be with the people to walk with them that's why they loved him so much because he they they sensed that this guy is with us this guy is one of us this guy is not coming at us from the same position vaulted you know up in the ivory tower of the temple or whatever uh what have you um you know he's willing to sit with us to listen to us to lay hands on us to actually touch us and he's not afraid that we're going to bring him down you know and that had a way of Doing the opposite effect, that, that being in his presence elevated these other people to be their best self, to repent or to you know do good to, for you know among their community and their families, whatever it might be. So yeah, you know, it's it's uh it's uh it's indicting, yes, but again, I think it was C.S. Lewis, he said something once that comes back to me sometimes. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. And I think there is this kind of narcissistic strain that runs through a lot of the churches where we're so concerned with with me and God, you know, this personal relationship to the exclusion of so many of these very vital social concerns and relationship with the neighbor, the horizontal relationship. That ultimately, if you, if you read the prophets, if you look through the Old Testament, the wisdom traditions, if you look at the message of Jesus throughout the New Testament, that's really where the meat is. That's where the relationship with God is. I think it was Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic worker movement, who said, we only really love God as much as we love the person we hate the most. <laughs> right. Like that's yeah. the bar. That's the measurement. It's not what you do in your in your, in your, in your, the secret place, you know, between you and God and your heart. It's, it's how you relate to that person whom you regard to be the other whom you regard to be the enemy, whom you regard to be outside or sick or in sin or whatever. That's the measure of your relationship with God. No matter what kind of mystical, spiritual, vertical connection you think you've got, you're, 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 you're cultivating, that's where the rubber meets the road is in the horizontal. So yeah, man, I'm totally with you there.
0: I love that vertical and horizontal, and I stole that from a creator. Uh, mm. I'll link that person. Yeah. Um, she's like a, I think I think she's an atheist now former Christian, but when she talks about, like, Christianity and where Christianity goes wrong, Mm -hmm. she basically says there's just this fixation in the vertical. And once I saw that, I'm like, I can't unsee it. I mean, this is the very problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, um, okay. So I I love this, like, Martin Luther King quote. Um, Mm, A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will, on, will be only an initial act. One day, we must come to see the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar, it comes to see that an edifice that which produces beggars needs restructuring like we need to capture this vision it's it's interesting to me just how many people celebrate martin luther king day yeah but would not consider the values behind such a quote yeah um it's so i mean like people it's like paying lip service to martin luther king Mm -hmm. yeah um and it seems to be like kind of within the American mores now that mm-hmm. that's what you do. Um, oh, yeah. Yet these people aren't really willing to think about the things that he actually said. Yeah. It's a lot like Jesus. Like, it it's is. Like, <laughs> <laughs> not that not Martin Luther King was Jesus, but man, sure. he was on to a lot of things that people mm-hmm. are just like... Uh, okay, we're gonna make him our mascot, but we don't really want to use his words too much. And I sure. think that's kind of what's happening with Jesus. Too. Yeah,
1: it's nothing new, right? I mean, and Jesus yeah. himself said to the that mm-hmm. one group of religious leaders that you kill the prophets and then you adorn their tombs. You know, you, you assassinate Martin Luther, you 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 turn a blind eye, a deaf ear to his message, and then you give him, make him a federal holiday. <laughs>
0: that's so crazy.
1: It is, right? Yeah. Huh. I think it's you know I think I think Martin Luther King Jr. is a good example of of a figure that's been whitewashed in American society, uh, mm-hmm. to where we 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 lift up and we celebrate the values that align with our traditional mythos. But the the ones that yeah. challenged, you know, the more prophetic stuff. We we just we don't we pretend it's not even there. You know, the fact that yeah. the week before he was shot, he was he was joining striking sanitation workers, and he mm. was beginning to call attention not just to the more overtly racist elements in society, but how they factored in with like issues of class,
0: mm.
1: you know, and uniting people of of color, both white and black, you know, in the, in this struggle for those who were oppressed, those who were suffering, those who were at the bottom of the ladder, you know, so. I think that's what this quote, too, is getting at. That the eventually, you know, acts of goodwill, acts of charity. Charity is not enough. Charity can actually be a symptom of the problem. You yeah. know, it's, it's solidarity is what we need. That's the way of Jesus. It's not its not charity. You know, we, the fact that we live in a system that produces such a great need for acts of charity because we've got all these beggars laying around, wounded everywhere. That's an indictment on the system that we have built and that we allow to continue every single day. And so I think in the evangelical mindset, that's why it's real easy to just focus on personal responsibility, personal sin as, as acts of, you know, violation between the, the, the individual and God and just really not care about the systemic issues, the systemic sins, because then it indicts us all equally. We're allowing this to go on every single day. You know, yeah. I was much responsible for that. Maybe I didn't cause it. Maybe I didn't start it. You know, it's not like that. It's not like I'm, I'm weighed with this personal guilt every day because, oh, you know, we haven't dismantled the criminal justice system yet, but it does help me to see my complicity in that system, which is harming a lot of my neighbors. And so Martin Luther King was starting to really bring that out before they killed him, <laughs> which I yeah. think is, is also why we have a Martin Luther King day and we don't have a Malcolm X day. Because when you read the writings of Malcolm X, man, you know, he was far more explicit in his his critique of American society, and so mm. yeah, we do that. We 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 kill the prophets and then we adorn their tombs. We did it with the Old Testament guys. We did it with Jesus. We do it with Martin Luther King Jr. Because if we're going to focus too much on the systemic side of things, then we're all guilty, and we're all complicit, right. and then we're all responsible to do something with that knowledge.
0: Mm. And really, we don't want to, <laughs> no, especially we don't those of us know. that have
1: you know comfort <laughs> and privilege. We we don't want to do anything. You know, don't wake yeah. me up. I'm good. I'm good right here.
0: Okay, so. Don't wake me up. I like that. <laughs> Reminds me of the term they always use against people who are social justice oriented. Right. I not say Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, so tell me about the conditions that cause addiction problems. Like, I know we've addressed some of it. Is there anything we're missing in what causes addiction issues?
1: Uh, well, you know, the classic definition of addiction is, is something that you're so attached to that you continue to engage in it even though it brings you harm. That's, mm. that's kind of the classic definition of an, of an addictive behavior, compulsive behavior. And that right. applies to drugs. It also applies to other things, food, gambling, sex. It's It's been applied to all kinds of things. The DSM-5 now even has a designation for like video game addiction and, and social mm. media and stuff like that. So it's all about this 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 trap we fall into where we're relying on something to get temporary relief for a problem. I mean, it's doing something for us, something good, something that we need. It's meeting a need temporarily we got to keep coming back to it and then but that as we do that long term it's doing more harm for us than it is actually good and meeting that need so it's an unhealthy adaptation to life it's an unhealthy coping mechanism it's a learned behavior that is ultimately destructive i think is how we can look at addiction and yeah for most people that arises out of you know a foundation of a whole lot of unresolved trauma nervous system dysregulation pain that has not yet been met and transformed in their life. And that's what's driving it. Socioeconomic factors that predispose a person to these types of unhealthy responses to life's stress. There's a whole lot underneath it uh, for a whole lot of people. And um, that's why I enjoy the work of people like Gabor Matei. I know he's a physician up in the uh, up in Canada, up in your neck of the woods. I've gotten a lot out of his work over the years and how he connects trauma with addiction and showing, you know, the underpinnings of what, what it's like for most people and that it's entirely human and it's entirely understandable. And we all have it in our life, even if it's some, in some of us, it's more socially acceptable. It's a more hidden under behaviors that appear more healthy and normal. So yeah, I mean, really, really the, the overdose crisis currently is an, an indictment. On the criminal justice response to drug use and addiction and the mental health and addiction crisis, all the diseases and deaths of despair that are rising across the Western world in such alarming rates is an indictment ultimately on the society itself that we've built, that we have what is on one hand, it's allegedly the most prosperous, rich, wealthy, powerful country, nation, society in the history of the world. And yet, at the same time, we have an increasing number of people, young to old, black, white, across all demographics, who cannot bear to be present in their lives in the midst of this social context. So, ultimately, so that's the indictment, I think, like, that underlies the overdose crisis.
0: Yeah. Something I keep hearing again and again, like there's this um, there's this Irish rapper, Wren, um, who in one of his songs, he says – you know, those of us who are mentally ill, it's the result of our society being so messed up and it's like, perhaps, you know, it's the people who are mentally not ill, those people who are mentally healthy, maybe they're the true sick ones Right. and it's so interesting because I see that coming up and up again too. There's like a TikTok creator that I see that keeps saying that too and I'm like, this seems to be like a... um a thought that's kind of being perpetuated right now, which I'm like, that's so interesting. And like, it's, you know, like where our, our therapy system is, is, is really trying to get people to cope with, well, it's like the good Samaritan situation, right? Where it's like, well, this is how you cope with the fact that robbers are going to beat you up and take your money. Right. Yeah. When we're not actually addressing what's causing all these illnesses, um, And I think that like the church could have such a good role to play in this, Mm -hmm. in righting some of these wrongs and like making our society better, Mm -hmm. you know, where we're actually instead of ignoring these things and like, you know, just trying to get ourselves right with God, we're actually trying to figure out how to make our society a place where people are able to not have to hide things. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's the thing is like, we're trying to get people to hide things all the time when in reality, it's like, let's let people have their own journey and walk alongside with them on their journey instead of placing all our expectations on them. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So a couple more things um, you say harm reduction began in gener- Genesis three. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah. So that was just a fun little take there at the end uh-huh. of the book. I wanted to include some history of the harm reduction movement as a whole, and I didn't get anywhere near close to encapsulating that. That's why I point readers to um, to other works, who uh, Maya Salovitz uh, in particular, who has done that recently in her latest book. But I wanted to also throw in that theological tie-in, as I tried to do throughout uh, the, my entire book. And so... As I sat down to write that chapter and I thought, well, how can I really like introduce this? That's just where my mind went. Um, and to sh- consider the story of the creation and the fall of humanity as we consider it uh, typically from this angle, through this lens of seeing harm reduction and faith as as an overlapping uh, concern here. Well, when when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, we know the story. Then God said, well, you got to (laughs) go, you know, and he exiles them from the garden. And as good evangelical Christians, we're we're very prone to seeing that in like a penal, you know, point of view, moral judgment, right and wrong. And then you choose wrong, you get punished. (laughs) That's how we understand almost everything. And uh, looking at it differently, though, because God says, oh, now they've eaten the tree of life. So let's remove them from the situation So that they are the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's remove them from the situation so they don't now take any of the tree of life and live forever in this fallen state, essentially. Mm. So when you look at it that way, it's an act of grace, not punishment, Mm. not judgment. It's God saying, oh, here's the situation. What are we going to do with this? Well, I want to reduce the harm associated with the choice they've just made. (laughs) You know, so I'm going to remove them from the garden. I'm going to send them out. Yeah, maybe it looks like a punishment. Maybe it looks like a judgment, but my concern here is that they don't remain this way forever. So I got to do some stuff now to try to fix this, to try to help them find their way out or back to the garden, right? Because if I just leave them here where they're at, you know, it's, it's going to get worse. So when you're just viewing it through that, through that, that lens, that angle, we see God's act of expelling Adam and Eve from the garden as a, as an act of grace, as a, a, and move towards harm reduction. So to frame it in that way and really see again, just to show throughout scripture, there's all kinds of theological basis for faith-based harm reduction. And we're not enabling anything bad or wrong. We're just meeting people where they are and we're doing what we can to say, hey, I support you. I love you. I want the best for you. So here's what I'm gonna do to just try to support that vision for your life. So it has that basis all throughout scripture.
0: Um, part of me kind of hesitates to bring this up, but, uh, Christine, I, 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 kind of mentioned her briefly. I didn't mention her by name, but, um, I just wanted to kind of give you an opportunity to kind of, um, just tell her story a little bit. Maybe Mm -hmm. what is the image of God you learned from her? And like, just, it's so tragic and it's so sad. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm assuming this is hard to talk about.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's meaningful. You know, I can talk yeah. about her. It's fine, you know? Um, yeah. but, but it's meaningful because of all the people I've met early on, because I featured Christine in my first book, that's how I met her. She mm. heard from a friend or something or saw online that I had this project going on where I was interviewing people for my first book to tell their stories and, and humanize them and their struggle. She reached out to me, wants to meet up, wants to tell her story, wants to, you know, talk. We can't make it work at first. She continues to pursue the opportunity until finally we do. We sit down. I listen to her story. And of, of all the people I've sat down with, you know, I can't remember every moment, uh, how I felt, how it impacted me, but I remember the look in her eyes when she said those words that I, I'm, I'm, I'm just a girl. I'm not an addict. I'm not some monster. I didn't ask to go through the things I've went through in my life. Who would? And again, that that relates to all the things we've already talked about in general, the things that under underlaid her, her experience of drug use and addiction. To see the urgency in her eyes, to see, you know, the tears welling up behind, you know, these words that she's speaking to me like this, because that was at the end of our interview. And she like turned it back around on me. You know, I'm interviewing her. I'm asking her questions about her life. And she, I remember afterwards, she said, what do you think? What's it going to take to get people to see that, me that people like me we're, were not monsters, that we didn't ask for any of this, you know, that we're, yeah. we're, we're good people. We're trying our best. You know, we, we love our family and our friends and we're, we're, we're doing what we can to rebuild. You know, that, that's how it happened for her. You know, she, it was a, a long period, lots of hardships she went through in life. She was trying to write it out herself. After I interviewed her, she, she contacted me to like help her write her own book of her own life story. And man, it was brutal. I've still got the document she sent me. It was just brutal, some of the experiences that she went through in life. I mean, you talk about abuse, neglect. We hear those terms. It's very broad, very general, very vague. But man, when you when you hear the stories from, from a person like Christine, it was just, oh God, you know, heart-wrenching. And, you know, she eventually, she you know, she had a substance use disorder. She had overdosed many times. The last time she lived in Columbus, which is about two hours north of me. Columbus, Ohio. She, she woke up to the sound of her son's voice shouting her name. She was laying in the bathtub. You know, he thought she was dead. She woke up. She agreed to look to, you know, get into treatment somewhere. And that's how she ended up coming down to the area of the county just adjacent to where I live. She got into a faith-based treatment center. And in her own words, they, they loved her. They believed in her until she was able to believe in herself. And I remember she told me a few stories of moments I mean talking with some of the, the the workers there and just sharing her story with them, and they were able to look her in the eye and without judgment and say, "Look, I understand, I know where you're coming from, but God loves you, we love you, you know, and we're here for you until you can learn how to love yourself, and how transformative that was for her. So she got back on her feet and she was just contagious with this uh, this passion to like reduce the stigma surrounding people who use drugs and those who were in recovery. And she was doing all this stuff. She wanted to start a woman's home. She had no experience, no technical expertise, no nothing. You know, she moved into my county. I tried to connect her with, with folks who were doing the work here uh, to help her form connections and all that kind of stuff. Um, unfortunately, um, around the holidays, however many years ago it's been now, I think it was 2019. Um, Lost touch briefly. The last I talked to her, she was, um, you know, gathering uh, gifts for kids and for some families that she knew around the holidays. Uh, Christmas came and went, New Year's came and went. And then I had another friend who I also feature in this book. uh, And she uh, contacted me one day and said that she, she saw an obituary and learned the news that Christine had passed away didn't know what happened, suspected, you know, that maybe she'd relapsed and overdosed. Um, I was able to track down her daughter uh, online via Facebook. And, you know, she confirmed, yes, Christine had relapsed and she felt too ashamed to tell anybody. You know, after everything she'd gone through, after her own all of her own passion to end the stigma, to, 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 to come into the light, to speak out, to always reach out for help, you know, telling other people this in, in her moment of deepest need even having formed those connections, even having been in recovery for a number of years now, when she fell back into that, she was too ashamed to come and ask for help. And so, you know, I can only imagine that the last time she used, you know, she was alone. You know, she was there alone. And that's how it ended for her, unfortunately. So, you know, it was kind of a no-brainer for me of all the people I've met to dedicate this book to her with the passion that she had to speak to people in a way that really helped them to see, Hey, I'm I'm just a girl. I've gone through a lot of stuff and it's brought me to some hard places. There's a lot of darkness. Yeah, there's bad choices, but this is what's behind it all for me and for a lot of other people. And if you can just understand this, then maybe you can relate to me. And then maybe we can form a relationship and maybe we can help help each other. You know, maybe we can find our way out of this together. And I think that's 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 ultimately the calling of the church. I think that's the value, that's the potential value that faith communities hold. Like you said, we could really be speaking to this issue and this problem in 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 so many more life-giving ways than we currently are. But I think it starts there. We've got to get to know people, we've got to hear their stories, and we've got to see them as human beings. Just like Jesus in that encounter with the Canaanite woman, not a dog, but a woman, you know, made in God's image. So I dedicate it to Christine for that. And I, I do appreciate you asking asking about her specifically.
0: Wow. Thank you. What a what a way to close this. Um, I really appreciate your work and mm-hmm. I appreciate all I've learned from you. Um, how do we put our listeners in contact with your work?
1: Yeah, so uh, I have a website. It's lawsonrights.com, L-A-W-S-O-N, rights, Writes, W-R-I-T-E-S, um, all lowercase, um, they can order signed copies of my books there. They can join the newsletter, my newsletter there, um, okay. get updates on future work. I'm also on social media. Uh, Facebook is where I'm most active. Um, Facebook, Instagram. I do a little TikTok. It's not all related to this kind of work because I have an interest across many fields. Uh, but joining the newsletter okay. through the website is, is the best way to stay up to date on uh, similar work and, and future things coming out.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you. As a, a honor to be here, I appreciate the conversation.